from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Surprising information regarding Russia's espionage efforts inside the U.S. They have somewhere on the order of 175 to 225-something spies in the United States. And how the tit-for-tat sanctions could hamstring U.S. agents operating in Russia. The United States has a handful, maybe a couple dozen or you know, in Russia. So when they, when we throw out 50, that means they're going to throw out 50 in ours and we're going to end up with small right. numbers and they're going to still have a quite a large number. So is that 200 and some number uh, just a, a hypothetical number you're throwing out or is that uh, closer to the truth? It's closer to the truth. That comes from a man who knows. John Seifer retired from the CIA in 2014 after 28 years in the National Clandestine Service. And that includes tours, serving in Moscow, and at one point running the CIA's Russia operations. Plus, a deep look at Russia's spying in the U.S., their tactics and tradecraft, what it means now and for the future. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. There are a couple of very important elements about intelligence that can make it or break it. It has a shelf life, which means it needs to be acted on before it expires. And also, there's the credibility of the information. How certain are those who receive it and analyze it that it's factual? That was a key question when the U.S. intelligence community reviewed the intelligence it got regarding Russian interference in the 2016 election and Russian espionage activities in the U.S. Target USA has spoken to numerous intelligence officials, members of Congress, and experts about Russian intelligence over time. But few of them have the kind of expertise that our guest on this program has. His name is John Seifer, Director of Client Services at Crosslead. He retired in 2014 after a 28-year career at the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. He spent quite a bit of time in Russia, working undercover against Russian intelligence, what those in the clandestine service call the pinnacle, or the Yankee Stadium of Espionage. On this program, you'll hear about Russian espionage tactics, the number of Russian spies in the U.S., obstacles U.S. spies are facing in Russia, and we begin with the strength of the intelligence the U.S. got that revealed Russia's activities in 2016. On January 6th of 2017, the Director of National Intelligence and the rest of the intelligence community put out a product that everyone had been collaborating on regarding uh, Russian activities and intentions in the recent U.S. elections. And in fact, that's what it was titled assessing Russian activities and intentions in recent U.S. elections. In that particular document, 
It says Russian efforts to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election represent the most recent expression of Moscow's longstanding desire to undermine the U.S.-led liberal democratic order. But we further assess Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President Trump. We have high confidence in those judgments. How normal or often is it that the intelligence community comes up with anything and says that we have high confidence in it? Uh, in fact, I was going to mention that the key word in there is the high confidence. Uh, the intelligence community, especially after 9-11 and the WMD uh, issues leading up to the Iraq war against Saddam Hussein, uh, there is a, you know, there is a, a culture of being very careful, of being very careful about your sources and, and letting policymakers know to what level the intelligence community is sure about, about their judgments. And so from my reading, when you say high confidence, that suggests that they have multiple sources and they're almost positive of what they're reporting. And the other word that was in there that I found interesting is longstanding. So I think for a lot of the American public, it was quite a shock to hear what the Russians have been up to. Uh, but those of us who have been working on, on Russian issues for a long time, we realize that this is part of their, a long-term strategy on their part. Most intelligence services are about collecting intelligence. The Russians have always been very good at something else, what we often call covert action or subversion, active measures, deception, mm -hmm. disinformation. And mm -hmm. that was part and parcel of what we saw in 2016. And that's pretty much the main reason why I invited you to come here. And thank you for coming here. It's because of your expertise in this particular area for a lot of years at a very, very high level. Could you explain for us um, what that activity was like? Um, what What kind of tactics did they employ? What kind of tradecraft did they use over that period to achieve that long-standing activity and the level of activity that was mentioned in that document so as to be effective to reach their goals when it came to the U.S.? Well, active measures is sort of a form of information or political warfare. It's, it's essentially an asymmetric form of warfare. warfare. It's essentially the, the tactics of the weak against the strong. In many ways, it's like terrorism, right? Terrorists can't take on a massive army head-on, so they have to look for weaknesses and hit around the edges. And in many ways, this is what we saw in 2016. Russian active measures are looking for weaknesses in the West, in the United States, and between the United States and its European allies, and push into those fissures and, and, and make, them, make them worse. And we've seen for a long time they have a doctrine that's very clear here, that's, that's using propaganda, state propaganda, it's using disinformation and deception, um, what made 2016 different, I think, was I think Vladimir Putin was willing to take more risks than normal. Why? Uh, I think, I th personally, I think he had a, a personal hatred of Hillary Clinton. I think mm -hmm. in 20, if we remember in 2012, when he ran for president after having been prime minister for several years, um, I think he was surprised by the amount of uh, people who were protesting in the streets in, in Moscow. And he blamed her for that. And I think he blamed her for that. He blamed the State Department. He blamed... Him, NGOs, which he believed that were being pushed by her, um, and some of her comments about him, I think he took quite personally. There's some resentment. And mm -hmm. the other thing, I, there's two other things I think are really different this time, is is um, the ability to weaponize social media is something that's new. The Russians have always tried to put false stories in the press. They used to go, in the old days, during the Soviet Union, they would go to India and put, it, put a false story about the United States creating the AIDS virus or something like this into, a pre, into the press 
and then try to move it up the media food chain into the European press and the Asian press and up until it until it got to its audience. Nowadays, you can algorithms can do the work for you. You can put the something right in social media and get trolls and bots and push that information out. And and the one most important thing, of course, though, really is it was our dysfunction. Our hyper partisanship was something that was very easy for them to stoke and play. And I think that's what hurt us in 2016. So they seized on some existing vulnerabilities and exacerbated these vulnerabilities, but they used some maybe not so sophisticated from a technical point of view or from a tactical point of view, I should say, but it was certainly sophisticated enough that would you say it's fair to say that we did not see it happening? I don't think we saw it coming for a couple reasons. Uh, One, I believe you know, we were so hyper-focused on terrorism and these other issues. I think there was an assumption among some of our policymakers and the public that the Russians you know, had similar interests than we did in terms of radical Islam. And we're, we're believing that you know, the, the world had moved on and, and the Russians wouldn't see us as the main enemy, as they often have. Those of us who worked against the Russians and followed Russian things, we knew they would continue to try to, to push and, and seek ways to harm us and hurt us. I just don't think anybody saw the level in the, uh, of what they were prepared to do in 2016. But also, I think there, there's some opportunis- opportunism here, right? Um, one advantage the Russians have that the U.S. doesn't have is we're, we're a global superpower. We're focused on China, terrorism. We have troops in a- Afghanistan and Syria, people in Iraq. The Russians are hyper-focused on the United States. They see us as the main adversary, the main enemy, all of the all of the elements of state power, whether it be their diplomatic service, their intelligence services, their police services, their are focused on the United States. So they had hackers going against us, they had intelligence operations going against us. They were trying to run spies here. All of these things were pushed against us. And I think what they saw in twenty sixteen is as this stuff was coming back to them, they they realized that they had an unusual amount of weapons. They had the DNC emails, they had John Podesta's emails. They may have had help from Trump people as part of the collusion thing. We don't know. Um, and, and by, say, May or June 2016, they had enough things that they could put them together. It could do some real damage here, and I think mm-hmm. it did. Let's break down a few of these weapons. Sure. Um, notwithstanding what they found through the trolls and through the hackers and through uh, just their full espionage efforts, they had a lot of people here. In the U.S., at least I've been told, one person that I was very familiar with who's passed away, who was a a Russian defector to the U.S., told me years ago that there were more Russian spies in the U.S. And this was during the 2007, I should say, to 2010 time frame that we're talking, he and I. They had more uh, spies here in the U.S. than than they had ever had in the past. Do you agree with that? And what role do you think they played, if you agree? If not, then explain. I absolutely agree with it. Uh, I was very heavily involved in the arrest of, of Robert Hansen, the FBI special agent, uh, and had been involved. I had served in Moscow when Elder James was arrested. So I've been involved in several of these tit-for-tat expulsions of diplomats and spies. Um, so the Russians, you know, this is an open society, and the people who are meant to defend in the counterintelligence realm against Russian spies and Chinese spies and others are the FBI. And the FBI are, are talented and very good at what they do, but they just don't have the resources to cover 
large amounts of spies in the United States, especially when they're focused on, on terrorism and making sure they run down every terrorist lead. So it's in the Russians' advantage to try to flood the zone and have as many people here as they can to collect information and understand the United States and have people in key places, which I'm sure helped them quite a bit in 2016. So one of the things we've seen recently as we've, we've thrown out some diplomats and spies and they've done the same to us, for those of us in the, in, in the professional side, that's often very hard to see because they, they have somewhere on the order of 175 to 225 something spies in the United States. The United States has a handful, maybe a couple dozen or, you know, in Russia. So when they, when we throw out 50, that means they're going to throw out 50 in ours and we're going to end up with small right. numbers and they're going to still have a quite a large number. So is that 200 and some number uh, just a hypothetical number you're throwing out or is that uh, closer to the truth? It's closer to the truth. Um, the Russians had a large presence here during the Cold War, but the FBI you know, understood during the Cold War that our main adversary was the Soviet Union and put a lot of resources on them. Uh, my understanding from talking to professionals and friends and others in the FBI is that, is that those numbers have grown over time. And so I certainly don't, you know, I don't go in and ask specific things since I've retired. That would be wrong. But, but let's say the numbers are in the, in the hundreds, at least 150 or more. It was before these expulsions. Well, that was my question. How do these expulsions, and, and even a better question perhaps, is how does, does the closure of a couple of these locations, several of these locations, including the one in Long Island, the one out in Maryland, the one in the consulate in San Francisco, and then again in Seattle, how does that impact their, their espionage machine, their ability to do this work that, um, again, was pointed out in the assessment of their activities as being fairly significant. How does how, how does the closure uh, of those locations impact their, their ability to do what they want to do? I think there's there's two ways to look at this. One is those act, actions taken by the United States to put pressure on the Russian was to try to influence Vladimir Putin, to try to get him to change the way he does things. The closure of those and the kicking out of diplomats, I don't think has a large effect on him. I don't think he's going to change the way he does business because diplomats get thrown out. I think it's a price he's willing to pay. For the espionage apparatus and the work they do, it certainly makes it harder for them. It was very easy when they were traveling out to Maryland. If if the FBI didn't have enough surveillance resources to follow them, they could break off and go uh, get involved in espionage, maybe tap phone lines or what have you. Um, they uh, took that uh, consulate in San Francisco very seriously. If we, you know, we think about what's out there with the national labs in Silicon Valley and 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 you know a lot of things on the West Coast that the Russians are very interested in, I think that was very important to them. So I do think the recent expulsions from 2017 and again in 2018 make it harder for the Russians. But again, we're we're an open society. It is easier for them to send people here undercover traveling and meet people and do things than it is for us to get into Russia, which has a very still very massive internal security apparatus where it's much harder for Americans to move freely around Russia mm-hmm. and make contact. So I want to ask a question about their doctrine, but I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds with this because there's a lot more exciting stuff about you and what you've done and, and, and what is going on present time than history, but you have an excellent grasp of this because of your work. And I I wonder if you could explain, you know, where they got this doctrine from that they employ 
which seems to underpin their their espionage operations. Uh, and, and I can't explain it myself. All I can say is what I've heard from people like you is that this is deeply rooted in uh, longstanding Soviet, even pre-Soviet traditions. Yeah, I'll try not to go too far because there's there's quite a bit of material here. Um, if we look back at the beginning of the Soviet state in 1917, the first thing that Lenin did with his people as the Bolsheviks took over was create a internal security service, which they called the Cheka, put a guy named Felix Dzerzhinsky in charge of it. And before they even came up with an economic plan and a political plan, they were putting together what we saw in 2016, what we call active measures. They'd created false worldwide organizations to try to draw in oppositionists and their enemies so that they could uncover them, kill them, and, 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 uh, control the people who might be opposition to them. Can I interrupt and ask a really quick question yeah, without getting you, no, without no, making you lose your train of thought? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read somewhere some some time ago that this guy, Jasinski, mm-hmm. was responsible for this ingenious plan that got Russian exiles to pay for their, essentially, their own demise. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We still study it in the services. It was called the trust operation. The trust operation. That's exactly. It. And they put together a thing called the Russian, uh, I'm not even sure, Central Russian Monarchist Organization that they ran in England and France and in areas around Russia and the Soviet Union, which was, in other words, the the Soviet state was running an anti-Soviet operation to bring people in to work against the Soviet state so that they could then uncover them and, and kill them. And so it was, it was a, it's a masterful operation. It was run literally, you know, within months after the beginning of the state. This is the ultimate in deception. Yeah. They're, 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 I have to say, I mean, the Russians are excellent at this. And through most of the 20th century, their operations, intelligence and espionage operations against the United States and Britain were far better than anything we had against them. And, you know, even if we look back before that, you know, the, the Okhrana, which was the czarist mm-hmm. secret services, were quite adept. They've, they're still in the Middle East people who believe some of the disinformation that they that the Okhrana cre- created in the 1890s oh about gosh. Jewish groups. They called the, the Protocols of Elders of Zion, which is still out on the Internet if you look for it, which is uh, anti-Jewish, sort of anti-Semitic um, uh, treatise that mm-hmm. people still believe is real. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the early Soviet leaders, Lenin and Stalin, those are, those are alias names. Those are names because that they grew up in undercover um, secret sell type of information you know, in, in, inside the country. So they've got a long history of internal security services, working against internal security services, thinking about these kind of things that is just alien to the United States. We don't think about spying. We don't think about espionage in our everyday life. Whereas to this day, the Russians, are, it's still a central factor of, of foreign policy in the, in the state. Safe to say it's highly evolved now, huh? They've always been very good, and it certainly is highly involved. And one no, of, I mean highly evolved. It, it's highly evolved, and one of the things I think that certainly helps that is Vladimir Putin was a career KGB officer who takes great pride in the Czechist tradition. So that original Soviet intelligence service called the Cheka, they have a every year they have Czechist Day that is celebrated, and Vladimir Putin makes sure that he's back in Russia so he can attend Czechist Day every year Hmm. to uh, talk about their past. John Seifer worked a long time in the CIA in a clandestine fashion and spent quite a bit of time in Moscow. And when we come back, 
But Moscow is something special. You know, inside the service, we would often call it the Yankee Stadium of espionage. If you can operate in Moscow when you're under the the, the thumb and the eye of, of the KGB who are, are bugging your home, following you all day and all night long, contacting every person you meet, video in your home, uh, all sorts of technical collection against the embassy, to be able to put together operations to succeed in Moscow to us is sort of the ultimate in, in, in espionage. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. On this episode, we've heard from a man with perhaps the best historical knowledge of anyone that Russia has perhaps as many as 225 spies, give or take a few, operating inside the U.S. And John Seifer, who was heavily involved in the arrest of FBI turncoat Robert Hansen and Aldrich Ames, the CIA officer who became a KGB mole tells us more about those days and what's to come. Speaking of being in Russia, and this is one of the most important and exciting parts of the conversations that I have with folks like you is to hear about your career, uh, what you can say. You spent time in Russia, in Moscow. What did you do? How long were you there? And why don't you start first with... Sure. One of the most interesting days or memorable days of your career there. Well, I think, you know, for the people who work in the clandestine service, we are generalists. We'll go from India to Russia to Japan to Pakistan or wherever and, and serve in a different variety of places. All of them important, all of them um, fascinating. But Moscow is something special. You know, inside the service, we would often call it the Yankee Stadium of espionage. If you can operate in Moscow when you're under the, the, the thumb and the eye of, of the KGB who are, are bugging your home, following you all day and all night long, contacting every person you meet, video in your home, uh, all sorts of technical collection against the embassy, to be able to put together operations to succeed in Moscow to us is sort of the ultimate in, in, in espionage trade. Crisis. How'd you do? Uh, we, I think we do very well. How, How did you do? <laughs> I think I, I did well, and I, and I think it helped to define my career. So I worked in the in the mid-90s in, in Moscow, and then later was a deputy of our group that ran our worldwide Russian yeah. operations. Well, so history we, seems to say you did an, an amazing job. <laughs> so, Well, you know, the one thing is, is it, it's very, very difficult to operate there because they're so focused on us. We're, yeah. again, the main enemy. Yeah. So we do have success, but it's a different level of success. Like here, when the Russians work, they can move quite freely. Mm-hmm. We have to concentrate on running a few, you know, gold-plated key operations as opposed to having a wide variety of sources and contacts mm-hmm. on the espionage side. Certainly. So do you have a day or a moment or something that is most memorable Um some operation or something that took place, something you can talk about that sure. is, is, is seared in your brain above all? Well, certainly in, in Moscow, the, the the spy versus spy of, of operating there is something that's just, it's, it's almost like a drug. It's bad for you, but you're addicted to it. <laughs> um, the thing I remember is actually after Moscow, um, working with some of the kind of excellent sources that we had um, led to the uncovering of some moles inside the U.S. government. So I, I worked very closely with 
uh, our people and the FBI to uncover Special Agent Robert Hansen, who was a spy, a longtime spy for both the Soviet Union and Russia inside the FBI, did tremendous damage to the country. Um, and being involved in source, source reporting material to help uncover him and have him arrested where he's now spending the rest of his life in prison is something that I remember fondly. Are there any details or a day or a, a particular operation or a trip or uh, 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 something that took place that stands out? Well, another one I can re- remember this that's similar, in fact, is I was in Moscow when uh, CIA spy Aldridge Ames was arrested. And so it was very interesting. We had full-time surveillance there as we moved around the city. The day that Aldrich Ames was arrested, I think the Russians were very concerned that we in the embassy, we in the, in the CIA, and I think they had a sense of who we were because Aldrich Ames had, had, was telling them he was a spy inside our own midst. Um, the Russian surveillance were incredibly aggressive after that. They would come up and they would actually touch us and push us to see if we had any kind of gear on our on our bodies that we might be using to do spy stuff. They were nervous that they we might have Russian spies inside Moscow that would be looking to flee when they heard the news that Ames had been arrested. So just the amount of um, attention and, and, and the sort of aggressiveness that the Russians were doing there, I, I remember it very well. Mm-hmm. Back to now. And um, what we see now um, is what... We who are just ordinary citizens without the benefit of the knowledge that you have about the operations that Russia runs and the way in which they run these operations, what we see now is something that's uh, much more blatant than perhaps before now that we understand how they work with trolls and how they work in cyber. Um, I'm curious as, as to how you think um, – the U.S. is doing right now in terms of dealing with this threat, which is very clearly, you know, the Pentagon and the U.S. government has said we need to return to the great power um, situation to deal with that. I'm curious as to how you think the U.S. is doing. On the Russia front, I mean, I, I believe that most people in the intelligence community believe that the thing that the U.S. has to get right over the next 20 years is less Russia, more China. China is really the most important thing that you know, if we get that right, we're going to be okay foreign policy-wise. However, Russia is going to continue, like I said, their their activities of the week against the against the powerful to cause us trouble around the world. We're seeing it in Syria now. We're seeing them supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan. We're seeing them in Ukraine and and doing many of the things they did against us in 2016 against our allies all over Europe. Um, so the I, how we're dealing with it. Part of the problem is we did not deal with it aggressively enough for the past, I don't know, eight to 10 years. So when the Russians went into Crimea, you know, the taking over part of Europe, which hadn't happened since certainly since World War II, when they sent troops, you know, into Ukraine, it pretended like they weren't their own. Um, when they took action, you know, supporting chemical weapons stuff with the Syrians early on, uh, in many ways, our responses were, were either weak or, or, you know, we were hoping for the best. I think now we're seeing at least some in the administration, not not necessarily the president. There's been a difference between what the president wants to do and some in his administration, I think, um, are starting to push back. So there's talk about providing some arms to the Ukrainians. There's that we've thrown out and expo- thrown out a lot of diplomats and things recently to show, and we've done it more importantly with our allies to show that we're together on this, that we're taking it seriously, and we're talking about further sanctions. So in that sense, I think we're beginning to show that 
we've had enough and we're very serious about it. But it's going to be a long-term issue. You know, Putin's a is a, a cagey player. Um, he's someone who uh, is very focused on us and willing to take risks that we often don't don't do, sort of brinksmanship. So I, I think 2016 started to focus on what kind of damage the Russians can do to us. So I think we're starting to respond to that well. Does the does the U.S. have the tools to uh, counter what you've already laid out and and very well to us um, a long evolved deeply specialized uh, espionage intelligence threat that is Russia led by a man who is at this point based on some of the sources I've spoken to the richest man in the world and by the same token, also a man who has deep, deep ties with the Russian mafia and essentially operates like a kingpin, uh, operates like a person who uh, has no limits. Uh, does the U.S. have the, 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 the kind of intelligence tools to penetrate and uh, operate uh, to, to, to protect the, the nation from that? In some ways, uh, the response to, to Vladimir Putin has to be far more than just, you know, intelligence tools. Cyber, if he does cyber attacks, us just doing cyber attacks back is not the key. The thing to remember is we are a far larger and more powerful country with far more allies. I mean, they have their allies are who? Syria, a little bit Iran, Belarus. I mean, there's not much people. And, and the things that matter to Vladimir Putin are exactly what you mentioned, his money and his power, staying in power. So I think many of the things we see are really about internal issues. Mm -hmm. He is making clear to his people that he's relevant, that he's important, that he's powerful, that he shouldn't be taken on, and he's taking actions uh, to keep himself strong and in power in the short term, month after month. That's why he keeps moving. So the things that we need to threaten if we're, if we're going to try to change his behavior are those things, his money, and his ability to stay in power. Um, in terms of protecting ourselves, uh, I think this was a bit of a wake-up call. I think our FBI uh, needs to get more support and resources. You know, they're doing a million things. They're doing everything from bank fraud to, you know, the Mueller investigation to, um, you know, terrorism to keeping us safe on a number of things. Uh, they also have to deal with, you know, Chinese intelligence and, and, and Iranian intelligence and all these other things. Um, they need a little bit more help in terms of being able to protect us against the Russians. Our NSA and CIA are collecting all around the world to make sure that, that we have the information we need. So I believe that we're we're certainly strong enough to deal with these issues if we if we focus on them. So really quick follow up on that. Do we need then a new agency or organization or do the existing ones need more resources? I think the existing ones need more resources. Um, the uh, the the turmoil and issue and problems that come up with trying to create new organizations. We saw it as we, as we staffed up uh, Homeland Security and the DNI, the director of national intelligence, oftentimes, you know, trying to change the boxes cause us focus on internal processes so much that we're not focused externally. I believe the FBI has the experience and to deal with this, they just need enough resources. They can focus on things Russia, China, mm -hmm. terrorism. These are big, big issues for us. Mm -hmm. And cyber threats, certainly. 
Speaking of the many threats that Russia brings to the table, murder is one of them. You mentioned early on the attempted uh, poisoning of the Skripals. We know about the Litvinenko situation, you know, in 2006. Uh, and, you know, there are many other suspected cases. Um, right now, some countries are thinking about going back and taking a look at some of these cases. There was a case here in Washington in 2007, a guy named Paul Joyal, um, that there are those that are skeptical about whether or not his death was benign, if, if, if there is such a thing. Then there's the case of Mikhail Lesson. Um, and um, I'm wondering, do you think the U.S. needs to go back and take a look at some, some, some cases, some situations that took place in the past that were not necessarily thought to be linked to Russian? I, I do, and I think the British are doing the same thing. And like I mentioned in 2016, we saw Russian active measures, and it's something they've been doing for, for decades and decades. This desire to go after people that they consider enemies and liquidate them is something that's been going on for years and years. Um, you know, even the Soviet intelligence services in the lead up to World War II, as, as Hitler threatened the invasion of the Soviet Union, the, the KGB, the Soviet intelligence services, were more focused on the liquidation of their enemies, Trotsky and other, than they were on uncovering the intentions of, of Adolf Hitler. Throughout the Cold War, every person that they saw as an enemy or defector, they would try in absentia and have a plan to, to kill them. I can remember even when the great dancer Rudolf Nureyev uh, defected from, from Soviet Union, they had these detailed plans to find him and, and break his legs and perhaps kill him. And so some of the things we've seen lately, you mentioned them, Litvinenko, perhaps Lesson, certainly Mr. Skripal in, in, in England, are part of a long-standing concern with, with defectors and people they consider enemies. So Mr. Putin has made it very, very clear that anybody who harms Russia is an enemy and will be taken care of. In the Soviet days, they at least had a positive ideology, the communism, that they could at least try to convince the world that this is what they are working for and the people in their services that they are working for a better world. We saw that it, nothing came of that. But now it's a cynical world. People in Russia and in those services understand there's corruption at the top of the government. They understand that Mr. Putin might be one of the richest people in the world. So the way to keep his people in line is through fear. So he mm -hmm. has to make clear if any of these people spy for the United States, spy for the British, leave and provide information, they have to worry that they're going to be hunted down and killed. And so we have to be, have our eyes open and understand this is, this is part of their state policy and we can't, we have to protect the people who help us. Last thing I'll ask, then I'll ask for any thoughts you want to share. The Cold War, we've heard for years that it was over. Do you agree with that? Cold War was, cer was certainly over, but we have to also, and people say, oh, it will be a new Cold War. Should we not have a new Cold War? I would say two things. One, again, is we have issues bigger than Russia to deal with. Um, however, we have to be honest about what we've seen with Russia. If you go back over the last 10, 15 years, Vladimir Putin has been consistently trying to do harm to the United States. He sees it as a zero-sum issue. Anything that can hurt the United States helps Russia. And so he is working against our interests throughout the Middle East with the Iranians, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Europe. He's attacking our allies. You can see in 2016, he attacked our elections. So 
it isn't that we want to, you know, us old guys want to redo the Cold War or anything like that, but we have to be honest. He is attacking us with all of the weapons he has short of, of military. Um, and even sometimes they're buzzing our military, you know, ships and things throughout the world. Um, you know, when people call you an enemy and treat you like an enemy, you have to start uh, thinking about how you're going to protect yourself. So if there's a cold, if there's a war, if there's a cold war, maybe we call it something different. We have to understand that they see us as the enemy and we have to protect ourselves. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is important that you want to add, or was there something you wanted to share today? I, uh, I, I don't think so. I just think, um, if, if the, if people want to look at how the Soviet intelligence services, excuse me, Soviet, listen, the Russian intelligence services work, um, you can get as much, well, let me put it this way. I'll let me step back. Um, during the Cold War, um, the great uh, ambassador, George Kennan, who spent his last years at Princeton, was, was seen as sort of you know, the godfather of, of, of the Cold War and how the United States had to respond to it, the author of the famous X Letters in Foreign, Policy, in Foreign Affairs magazine and others. Um, every when new ambassador was going to be go out to Moscow during the Soviet Union, they would go up to Princeton to see Mr. Kennan, and they would say, ask his advice on how to prepare to go to Moscow. And he would say the same thing to all of them. He would say, I want you to go into the Princeton Library or any other library. I want you to find books from 18th, 19th century Russia. Read any of them, anyone you choose, and it will tell you more about modern Russia and modern Soviet Union than anything you need to read right now. There's been a consistent Russian mentality, view, way of viewing the world and way of viewing their enemies that, have, that has been historical over time. So if we want to know how the Russian intelligence services are looking at us, we can, we can go back and look at tons of Soviet examples. There's lots of books, lots of information, and, and for the most part, they'll be quite accurate. Was Kidden the guy that wrote the, the long telegram or the yes, long cable? That's right. And that... If I'm correct, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that where he explained truth, the deception, you know, the whole business about, in part, about how um, they approach truth and lies? Yeah. So, you know, if we remember in World War II, um, the Russians were our allies. And as we came out of, of the war with Stalin in charge, uh, I think there was obviously a hope that as we move forward, there would be some cooperation with the Russians. And Kennan, who had been our ambassador there, uh, realized that, that the communist view and the view of Stalin and others was antithetical to ours. And so he was one of the first people to, to make it very, very clear what Soviet intentions were around the world and how dangerous they were to us. It was, and it was meant, he wrote that long telegram, which is still a fantastic read if you do. It is. To sort of open our eyes to how they view the world and how they, they, uh, they, they intended to win against the West. Yeah. This has been a, a truly invigorating conversation for me and only a small part of the questions that I have for you. But um, we thank you for your time and we thank you for sharing with us. Um, I'm, I am certain, I'm absolutely certain that everyone that listens to this podcast is going to come away from this much more um, educated and much more knowledgeable about what's out there. So thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks. John Cipher, a retired CIA officer who worked for many years in the clandestine service against Russia. And coming up in our next episode. People talk about tit-for-tat expulsions. It's a little, a little, uh, little different than that. There is a, um, a dance, if you will, that's always gone on between the Soviet Russian intelligence services and the United States. There's an understanding, and the Russians make this quite clear, 
that if some of their people are expelled, they will expel people from the other end. We don't have the kind of intelligence presence, so the Russians just kick out diplomats. And that has an impact on the United States in, in terms of not only intelligence collection, but engagement on Russian issues on the ground inside Russia. That's coming up on our next episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast, and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From Podcast One and the voice of the American people, it's time to fight back with Barbara Boxer. It's so hard, I think, for the average person who has to get up in the morning to follow this stuff. This is a problem solvable. All we have to do is look around the world. They have made a difference in Florida. It's it's unbelievable. Listen free and subscribe to Fight Back with Barbara Boxer exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.